Good afternoon. Um, I'd like to um, welcome you here this afternoon um, on behalf of the British Museum um, to this uh, lunchtime lecture in the UCL lunchtime lecture series. Um, we're delighted today to welcome Professor Anne Johnson, who is Professor of Infectious Disease and Epidemiology at UCL. She's also co-director of the UCL Institute for Global Health. After training in medicine um, at the University of Cambridge and Newcastle University, she specialises in epidemiology and public health and has had a clinical research career spanning over 20 years. She's principal investigator on the National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles, which was the largest survey of its kind in the world. Um, and she's also on the Wellcome Trust Board of Governors. Um, we're very excited to hear um, this um, topic of this lecture on the spread of HIV um, in the museum. I mean, I want to just mention briefly that um, I think it, what's exciting about having it here is that we do have objects in the museum which relate to the spread of HIV. Um, if any of you know the Living and Dying Gallery, the Wellcome Trust Gallery, which is room 24, there are several objects in there which... Um, suggest some of the processes involved in the spread of HIV. Material culture can offer an insight into the social impact of disease. Um, it can be a form of therapy, as some of our objects suggest that. It can spread awareness, and it can also show the impact of, uh, well, the, econo um, the economic impact of disease. So I would encourage you afterwards to go and have a look for some of those objects as well. Professor Johnson's going to be speaking today to the title 30 Years and Still Counting, Slowing the, Sp uh, Slowing the Spread of HIV in a Complex World. And she just told me that um, it is almost 30 years to the day since um, um, HIV was first described. And she's been studying it for 26 of those 30. Professor Johnson, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Well, thank you very much for that introduction and, and thank you very much also to the British Museum for uh, the invitation uh, today. And I think you've already um, heard the title to which I will speak. Um, and I can just perhaps have the first slide up. Okay. So um, you've just heard that it is indeed, it was indeed in June 1981 when the very first case of AIDS was described, not, of course, HIV, because this was a mysterious disease. And what I put there is the um, very first account of AIDS in the CDC Atlanta MMWR weekly report. And it reports on five gay men, young men, all um, who were confirmed with a very curious pneumonia called pneumocystis crenii pneumonia, which you only normally see in people who are immunosuppressed. I'm an epidemiologist, and it was up to the epidemiologist to try to understand what was going on, just like with the recent E. coli outbreak. They had to investigate these patients and understand what linked them. And they, through interviewing them, suggested that there was some aspect of a homosexual lifestyle or a disease acquired through sexual contact. And in a way, that very first description told us um, what was the likely cause of this curious outbreak, that it was likely to be something that was likely to be in, in, in infectiously transmitted, possibly an infectious disease which suppressed the immune system. And then, of course, there was a great flurry of activity as cases began to appear around the world. It was only a very short time after that that the first case of AIDS was diagnosed in London. 
This presented a huge problem for the public health people of the day. Some of you will remember Sir Donald Atchison, who was the chief medical officer at the time, um, and uh, the Secretary of State at that time, uh, Norman Fowler. And it fell to them, really, to think about how we would deal with a disease that was highly stigmatised, whose, co whose, uh, whose cause was unknown, the course of which was unknown, that was deadly because at that time most people with the diagnosis of AIDS would die within six months. And there was great uncertainty about how far it would spread. People knew that there were many new cases arising in San Francisco, in gay men, there were also cases being observed in haemophiliacs, people from Haiti, and it was apparent that whatever this was was likely also to be uh, transmitted through bloodborne infection. I first came to Middlesex Hospital in 1985, and the first job I was given was to design the first ever ward for people with AIDS. And actually, it was largely, or very often, sadly, a kind of ward for terminal care, because there was very little we could do except treat the pneumonias. And those of you who um, are old enough to remember will remember the great fear around the, um, around the nature of the epidemic. And there were all sorts of um, uh, moves by the public health authorities to change sexual behaviour. This one cracked down on gay baths in, in, in San Francisco. Whereas at the Middlesex, we set up this ward. And you'll remember this iconic photograph when Princess Diana came to open the ward and shook hands with an AIDS patient. And I think this was an extraordinary act of public health education because it reassured the public which HIV could not be casually transmitted. In the UK, there was a really dramatic and I think very imaginative public health response in retrospect, in that the government faced up to what, we, what was uh, going on and uh, really educated in part by what was going on in San Francisco and even more advised by the gay community who really enacted a huge campaign amongst themselves to reduce the uh, 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 sexual practices, unprotected sex and to reduce numbers of partners and eventually, actually, but not in the early days, to promote the use of condoms. Meanwhile, the government sent a leaflet to every, every household in the country and on it were the description of how AIDS was understood to be transmitted through unprotected sex and a beginning, beginning to understand uh, transmission through drug use. And so for the first time, in a way, these issues of sexual behaviour became public. They became in the public discourse. Before that, people did not discuss sexual practices at the dinner table, but they did after the, um, the uh, tombstone campaign. But you see, a lot of this was built on fear, fear of dying, and um, fear of disease. What we realised in our research at the Middlesex Hospital was that underlying the AIDS epidemic, underlying this uh, condition of young men dying with this terrible terminal disease, was an epidemic of, um, of an, an infection uh, which had really extended through the community silently. It was in 1984 that the, AIDS, the, the causative, AIDS, causative agent of AIDS, human immunodeficiency virus, was isolated in Montagne's laboratory in Paris. And shortly after that, the first antibody test for HIV was developed at the Middlesex Hospital. And we were able to test, um, uh, we were able to test uh, anonymously uh, stored blood samples to work out 
how many people had been, ex had been exposed to HIV or, or were carrying HIV as measured by HIV antibody. And that graph shows you that in around about 1982, only 3% of the men coming to our clinic were infected. But only two years later, it was over 20%. This was a really terrible epidemic. And the gay community mobilised, and you can see from the graph at the top that all those lines go down. That's the number of people coming with gonorrhea, rates of gonorrhea. And generally, the rates of gonorrhea went down. The HIV prevalence went up, but it didn't continue to go up. It, it went up, but it remained at about... Um, it went up to about 25%. That's a quarter of these men were infected. That's a very alarming number. And the mathematical modelers and epidemiologists subsequent to this, I mean, some years later, um, 10 years later, tried to reconstruct the epidemic that had gone on because we began to understand what the natural history of HIV was, that uh, once you were infected with HIV, you would see a gradual attack on your, on your white cells in the immune system, and about 50% about 50 of people 10 years later would have AIDS. And from knowing the, dis the incubation distribution for AIDS, they were able to work out that the peak, peak of this epidemic was around 5,000 gay men infected in England in 1983. That was the highest incidence. Hold that number in your mind, 5,000 people infected in 1983. Then there was the gay campaign and the government campaign, and there was a huge change in behaviour. Um, not only homosexual behaviour, but heterosexual behaviour, and the number of cases of infection probably, these are just estimates, to decline to about 1,000 a year through from 1985 to about 1995. I was working on the epidemic at that time, and people were very, very unclear about how far the epidemic might spread. And I only show you this picture because each of those lines on that graph, of which there are many, was produced by, you know, a nationally revered epidemiologist or mathematical modeler who tried to extend their best estimate of the size of the epidemic. And you can see that their estimates were like an order of magnitude apart. Some thought maybe, you know, 1,000 cases, another 10,000 cases. So there was a great uncertainty. And there was uncertainty because people didn't understand the biology. They didn't understand how the virus attacked the white cells, and, most of, and, and equally, they didn't know about the behaviour in the population, about how many people were likely to be at risk. And people got even more worried when it became apparent that not only there was an epidemic in gay men, this virus could be heterosexually acquired, and that there was a growing epidemic in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa, which was much more severe and was almost entirely heterosexual. That, in turn, meant that there were major um, campaigns around the world to reduce the spread of HIV. And some of them were successful, and some of them were not. And they all had differing and often slightly confused messages. Because talking about sex, talking about drugs, talking about homosexuality, were all issues around behaviours that we often don't talk about, that are often socially censured, that often we don't understand about. So some countries were very successful. We were pretty successful because we faced up to the epidemic in the early days. The Thai government was very successful. They had a 100% condom programme amongst their sex workers and their clients and really managed to reduce incidents. Places like 
uh, Uganda had very strong engagement from their government who um, put out messages about reducing partners, using condoms and really had some effect. South Africa, Zimbabwe, probably less effect where there was quite a lot of denial. And other campaigns, much debated, were around abstinence but didn't talk about condoms. Others, um, other countries really felt unable to educate their populations. And the result has been, unfortunately, devastating epidemics in many parts of the world. We know now, of course, that HIV can be transmitted through sexual transmission, and those at highest risk in the early part of the epidemic were sex workers and their clients, and men who had unprotected anal sex with many male partners. We knew it could be transmitted parenterally or through the blood by um, sharing needles uh, and through contaminated blood products, which were now protected from by screening as a blood supply. A mother-to-child transmission, which can occur in pregnancy and through breastfeeding, has, in, at least in this country, been almost halted by, by um, screening of all pregnant women for HIV to ensure that women who have HIV can benefit from receiving anti antiviral treatment to stop the virus being passed on to their unborn child. But that is not true in many parts of Africa where the services are not so good. So when we think about, as an epidemiologist, I'm not concerned, well, I am concerned with individuals, but I'm much more interested in populations in the public health. So epidemiologists always try to understand what it is that drives the spread of things in populations. And clearly, for a sexually transmitted infection, that is the interaction between how people behave and, and how the organism behaves. And I often ask the medical students to think about what the qualities are of a biological organism is that might, might want to, how it would survive if it was sexually transmitted. By and large, organisms that are sexually transmitted are not very easily passed on, but they're very good at hanging out for a long time without you knowing they're there, which is how they get passed on. But for, for epidemiologists, we're not under, concerned about individuals. We're concerned about the population level, stopping the spread from one person to another, stopping one person infecting more than one other person, which is how infections spread. And so when we put in control programs, we have to think about changing behavior, but we also have to sort of think about changing the ecological niche that, uh, and, uh, that the organisms occupy, taking account of the particular socioeconomic environment in which um, uh, HIV operates. And there are a huge number of social issues here, and many of them are around um, uh, uh, also, uh, issues related to the economic environment, the power relationships between men and women, the economic relationships between men and women, the demographic environments and situations which often mean that for example, in African situations where people, uh, uh, men are forced to live away from their families for work and so on. All these make HIV spread. But in the UK, we didn't know much about behaviour and we didn't know much about it anywhere in the world. But we did set out to do a very large behavioural study. And you can see that studying sex is not very respectable, you see, in the 1980s. And indeed, we were all ready to do this survey. We'd worked out the British public were keen to participate, but it fell foul of the then Prime Minister, um, and Mrs. Uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher. But I'm pleased to say that the Wellcome Trust um, uh, did pick up the funding for that. And indeed, we are now um, on our third survey of sexual attitudes and lifestyles. We did one in 1990, one in 
in uh, uh, 2000 and others ongoing at the moment, funded now by the Medical Research Council and the Wellcome Trust. And that helped us to understand how people behaved in the population, how behaviour was changing, and how we might work with people to educate them and to provide them with the kind of services that fit, fit, fitted in. Now, fast forward. I've told you that by the time HIV was identified in 1984, we knew how it was transmitted and we knew, that if we knew the kind of behaviours we had to change to prevent its spread. Well, how do we get on? Well, basically, incidence has gone on increasing since 1984 and now there are 33 million estimated around the world living with HIV. And you can see, if you look at that map, that about one-third of them are living in sub-Saharan Africa. And there has been... Um, certainly, when I went to India in, um, uh, in 1986 to talk about HIV in a number of Indian institutions, HIV had only a handful of cases had been described in Chennai. Uh, and now, of course, there are many thousands of cases. And then another fast-forward, and the extraordinary thing, I told, talked to you about AIDS and, and dying and fear of death. And there has been, of course, huge investment in, uh, in treatment. And in, by 1995, um, treatment had become available, which suppresses the amount of virus in the blood, antiretroviral treatments, which, when used in combination, we now know, can radically alter people's life expectancy. I mean, in a phenomenal way. Their life expectancy and their quality of life. It's a huge medical success. But it isn't in always, if you like, a, a, a success. We, it isn't yet a success in terms of controlling the epidemic, and I'm going to say something about that. So there was a huge focus on the magic bullet, if you like, of HIV treatment. I think that made us take the eye off the ball in respect to prevention. So all the time we're treating people, new people are becoming infected, and I'll say more about that. Antiretroviral treatment, um, first of all, was... Um, uh, rolled out in this country from about 1995. And I show you this graph from the Health Protection Agency to show you that before about 1995, when antiretroviral therapy became widely available, people didn't get tested for HIV very much. That went back, really, to real fears about what HIV tests meant from the 1980s, when there was no treatment. And I think, in a way, we kind of... We made HIV so exceptional that we didn't manage it like an ordinary infectious disease for all the reasons of stigma and for all the uh, reasons that people were discriminated against. It's fully understandable. However, we didn't go looking for this infectious disease and so perhaps we didn't um, you know, pay enough attention to the benefits that might come from getting people on early treatment and of using the test as also a way of helping people to understand how they acquired the virus and, and how they might prevent themselves from passing it on. Since treatment became available, there has been a big increase in testing. But again, I think the medical, we, we maybe the medical profession have been a bit reluctant to push testing, to encourage testing, because of that legacy of fear <coughs> and stigma. But now testing is being rolled out much more widely, and testing is, um, uh, is, is is, is now widely used and offered to everybody who comes to all GUM services. And this week, the Health Protection Agency has once again emphasised their advice that treatment must be, that uh, testing should be much more widely available in general practice, in other settings, in hospital settings. And we should be doing much more to think about HIV as a diagnosis because treatment can change people's lives. 
In our research in, at, at, around the corner at UCL, at the Mortimer Market Centre, and across Europe, we have been studying people who, who's, who, who we know the date that they got infected. So we can make an estimate of what their survival patterns are. That top yellow line shows you that before infection became, uh, before, sorry, before treatment became available for infection, 15 years after infection with HIV, about 60% of people had died. If you look at the bottom two lines, for people on treatment in 2004 um, to six, then what we're looking at is a survival a, a, um, a death rate which is um, well below 10% and not very much higher than people of a equivalent age in the general population. This has revolutionised people's um, lives living with HIV, which is wonderful. But maybe it's also meant that people are less aware of HIV, less concerned about its impacts. And if you talk to people living with HIV on treatment, you know, they were, it's, it's easier to live off treatment than on treatment because HIV is for life and people once on treatment need to be on it forever. We in the UK benefited from free HIV treatment very early on, but in the parts of the world most affected, HIV treatment only became available later. And an extraordinary amount of money has now gone in from um, PEPFAR, that's the um, uh, US system, and from, and from, uh, um, uh, from the global programme on AIDS, to introduce antiretroviral therapy in very difficult environments, environments really where there is no secondary uh, uh, medical services, where there is often no water, poor sanitation and so on. And people, and they're now introducing on-site testing, and this is an example in KwaZulu-Natal, um, a programme run in the uh, Wellcome Trust Africa Centre where Marie-Louise Newell is director of that centre. And um, they are carrying out research into the impacts of antiretroviral therapy. And I certainly know from my first visit to Uganda, where the first trials were done of delivering these therapies, of the way that the pharmacist said to me, I no longer need any of those treatments for, um, for, um, for opportunistic infections in the top top shelf of my pharmacy. I've just put them all away because we give people antiretrovirals and it's as if they, you know, she described as waking from the dead. Extraordinary. And in the 10 years since HIV has been, uh, treatment has been rolled out to low and middle income countries, um, the, now the estimate is something over 6 million people are now on treatment. That is the good news. Fantastic. The less good news is that there are 9 million people who are not on treatment who would benefit from it, even under the current guidelines for treatment, which I'll talk about. And in addition to those 9 million people, are the 7,000 people getting infected every day around the world who will need it in the future. So those people, those 9 million people, are not just needing treatment this month or this year. They will need treatment for life. That's hugely expensive. The cost in the UK of treating one person with HIV in, over their lifetime is currently estimated at over a quarter of a million pounds. And if you think about that, it, preventing one case of HIV is a huge benefit to the individual and a huge benefit, if you like, to society and to, um, to, the, uh, and, and, you know, to the, the health system. Antiretroviral therapy is meaning that the number of people dying from AIDS is at last reducing. But worldwide, 33 million people infected, 1.8 million deaths. Wonderful, many fewer deaths. 
but 2.6 million people infected. So more people are being infected than are dying, and you don't need to be um, Einstein to work out that that means there are more people living with HIV. And some people estimate that for every person put on antiretroviral therapy, two new people are being infected. So we are building up, if you like, a huge problem for the future to treat people, how much better it would be if we could stop this virus in its tracks. And of those people infected, those two to three million, 97% are in low and middle income countries. Half of them are women, half of them are men. And by and large, they are infected through the heterosexual route. And many of them, uh, of course, have died, leaving behind them in children, orphans, and indeed children who are living with HIV. In an environment which is often stigmatised, it increases poverty, um, and it causes a whole range, as you can imagine, of issues in families and societies really are riven by this enormous epidemic, which is so much greater than it is in our own country. So we've got to do something. We can decrease the source of infection by changing behaviour. That's the top left-hand um, uh, box. But increasingly, we're thinking, how can we use these antivirals, if they suppress viral load, can we use them to reduce the spread of HIV? And one obvious route is to stop, we're already doing that, to stop mother-to-child transmission by treating the mother. Because it reduces the amount of viral load. We can also try and reduce the host's susceptibility to infection by treating their other sexually transmitted infections. We can also try to protect women who often find their partners won't use condoms. And I think there's still a lot more to be do, done, however, to educate the men to do that, not let them off the hook. But nevertheless, topical microbicides are a way for women to protect themselves. But microbicides have been very difficult to develop, and the, only, the first effective one, which is an antiretroviral, which can be used in the vagina, was uh, shown to be effective last year. We're still a long way from a vaccine. The thing about a vaccine is that a vaccine, to be effective, needs to stimulate your immune system to um, recognize infection and get rid of it. Um, when it comes along. Unfortunately, this virus is so clever, it, it sort of avoids the, the mechanisms of the immune system, and so vaccines have been very difficult to develop. In terms of circumcision, trials have been done in Africa which show that men, adult men, when circumcised, um, uh, greatly reduce, don't eliminate, but reduce their risk of HIV infection. And then we can also change risk behavior through condom promotion, individual interventions, and structural interventions, interventions, for example, that maintain greater um, community cohesion, that reduce the um, inequalities amongst women, structural interventions, which mean that uh, work, and, work and, um, and, and family life can continue together and so on. So I think these things together, none of these is going to solve the HIV uh, epidemic alone. The issue is to get them together. You, you often hear people talk about prevention or treatment. These things have to be provided as an integral service, including once people have HIV, to really continue to maintain risk reduction to prevent them from passing it on, to work with people who are at risk but HIV negative from acquiring the virus in the future. We need to put the whole lot 
together because there are risks of HIV um, uh, uh, antiretroviral therapy that um, are, on the one hand, the advantages are of making people less infectious and making them better, critically. But maybe also if people live longer with HIV and they're less concerned, we may have increased risk behaviours and increased transmission. And this is the kind of thing that we've been, uh, uh, we've been uh, studying here in London. So what you hear people talk about is not just highly active antiretroviral therapy, but highly active HIV prevention, which puts together behavioural change and medical treatment to suppress the amount of uh, virus in the blood, to diagnose people and treat them, along with biomedical strategies, which, take, which are cognizant to the dominant uh, and, 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 and minority social views and socioeconomic environment, which uh, is so important. We had a discussion together just before this um, meet, uh, this lecture about the objects in the British Museum, um, which you may be interested in to, to, to see, where women in communities, you know, have expressed many of their issues around HIV and the fear that this engenders, the impact it has on their families. Now, can treatment? alone, can treatment really be the answer to stopping the spread of HIV? And here's this great big headline in this week's um, report that accompanied a high-level summit on HIV in the States. This trial, HPTN 052 for what it's worth, that was its number, um, on the 12th of May showed that if you treated HIV-positive people um, and they stick to their regime, albeit they were also advised to use condoms and so on, they could dramatically reduce the risk of passing HIV on to their partners. The first time this has been showed in a trial. It had been showed in observational studies, but not in a trial. And so the view is, if we could get far more people who are infected on treatment, could we thereby, treating them, reduce the spread of HIV? And this has been modelled by mathematical modellers. This was a paper in the medical journal The Lancet, where this was not, this wasn't actually, this was, a, this was a thought experiment, a mathematical model, not a real experiment, um, just a, you know, a, a, a simulation. That if we gave universal annual voluntary HIV testing, along with present prevention methods, i.e. condom advice, could we, we could have a major impact on severe generalised HIV epidemics, not the focused epidemics we have in the UK, but generalised epidemics. So what about the UK? Can we learn anything? Is, has this in any way worked in the UK? In the UK, we've got about 86,500 people living with the HIV. And even though we've got widespread availability testing, a quarter of those who are with, living with HIV are unaware of their diagnosis, a quarter. On that, you could say cup half full is 75% are diagnosed, good. But 25% aren't. Furthermore, of the 6,500 people newly diagnosed, that, that means they had their diagnosis, not necessarily new infected, one in six got their virus recently. So despite 25 years of education, there's still a lot of people acquiring HIV in the UK. The prevalence in gay men in, in, London, in London clinics, probably about, or men who have sex with men, around 10%. And half of the people we diagnose, particularly those who are from African communities who often have much less awareness of access to, to services, tend to be diagnosed late, so they don't get the benefit of the treatment. And not only they don't get the benefit of the treatment, they may also be more infectious. So we're diagnosing more people. We've got this great 
build-up of people we're looking after. Fantastic, they're all getting on therapy. 75% of them are on therapy. But in order for those people, and that's all by age group, I want you to t pay attention to the top blue lump, which is those over 50. So we're still seeing new diagnoses in older people. And the ones at the bottom, which are those 15 to 24. These 15 to 24-year-olds are young men, uh, particularly uh, gay men, who are becoming infected, who weren't exposed to the sort of widespread campaigns that some of, our, some of the elder amongst us were. Are we really doing enough to educate people around the time that they become sexually active? And we're seeing more and more new diagnoses. We had the most diagnoses in, in men who have sex with men this year in the UK, um, uh, well over 3,000 um, uh, uh, who, who were diagnosed. That's good, they're going for diagnosis. The question is how many of them are newly infected? I'm sorry about the large number of graphs. Look at the top blue line. We've been encouraging men to get tested. The top blue line shows that in our clinics, around about 90% of people seem to be taking an HIV test. But even doing that, 25 or so percent we know are still you know, not getting diagnosed. And in our studies in, the UK, in, in London, and this is work done at UCL with the Health Protection Agency, we've been doing anonymous testing in some of the gay pubs and clubs in London. And um, we, so we can work out the proportion of people who are infected. And what this shows is that in 2000, was around about 8%, and now that level's gone up uh, in the blue, in the purple line to about 10%. So about 10% of the people in, in these surveys, I mean, they're not representative sample surveys, they're representative of the people who go to those venues. Around 10% have got HIV that they have had diagnosed. But a constant 3 or 4% have HIV that isn't diagnosed. Now, think this out. It can't be possible, it, it, how can it be possible that if um, we're increasing the number of people that we take out of the infected pool of people and diagnose them, then you would expect that prevalence, that 4% prevalence, the number undiagnosed, to reduce. And the only way that that 4% can remain at 4% is because for every person we're taking out of the infected pool, and, you know, another one is getting infected, okay? And I will show you the classic, if you don't like numbers, this is the sort of <coughs> verbal explanation. If you imagine that bath is, is uh, a certain level of, of water in the bath, it used to be the fact that people, we can think of that as the level of HIV infection. So people no longer dying of HIV wonderfully, which is great, but if the level in the bath water is going up, the only way, if people aren't dying, the only way that, um, that the, bar, the level in the bath water can be increasing in the population is because we've got new water pouring in the top or new infections. And there's currently a review going on of HIV, AIDS, and, and uh, the, the, what the Health Protection Agency said, uh, been saying is that probably, quite possibly, the number of new infections amongst gay men in London, or rather in England, is around two to 3,000 a year. Cast your mind back to the graph I asked you to remember, which you've probably all forgotten. And I told you that the peak of the epidemic, 5,000 men were being infected. After the campaign, maybe one to 2,000 infected. Now, 15 years on, maybe two to 3,000 being infected.
So if you think about that, that 75% tested, 75% on treatment, we are still seeing new infection. So antiretroviral therapy, incredibly important that we get people on treatment for both treatment and prevention. But we have to keep the educational messages going. We have to keep, um, we have to keep on with this combined approach of reducing stigma, making services available, making, helping people to understand the nature of this epidemic and ensuring there are resources for prevention and treatment. And we put the packages together, engaging with the communities who are most affected. This is our data on behaviour. So underlying some of this increasing, uh, this in new infections is increasing, or at least certainly not decreasing risk behaviour. And in our surveillance from 1996 to 2008, what that shows you is that the amount of unprotected anal intercourse is increased, it's, increased, it's about levelled off now, um, but it's, it's remained high. And we know from the NatSAL surveys that have been involved in between 1990 and 2000, um, uh, HIV risk behaviours or Sexually, sexual risk behaviours increased in terms of numbers of partners, maybe perhaps because in 1990 it was um, at a minimum when we first measured it. And you can see that in this wonderful graph, which I goes right... We may not think it's a wonderful graph. It's my favourite graph, this one. It's the number of cases of gonorrhea diagnosed in England and Wales going back to 1925. So all of you can look at your teenage years on that graph, everybody in this room. And for those of you that were um, teenagers or young people in the 1970s, you can see what a risky environment it was to live in, a lot of gonorrhea around. And you can see in the 1980s the huge impact that the AIDS epidemic had on, on sexual behaviour as measured by uh, sexually transmitted infections. But you see from 1995 onwards, people perhaps were less aware of some of the issues. Risk behaviour goes up. Very good news this morning. Somebody said, are you going to end on an upbeat note? I did hear there's been a small downturn in the number of cases of sexually transmitted infections reported by the HPA. Let's look into the future, my last couple of slides. We can talk about prevention as treatment and treatment as treatment and treatment as prevention, but whatever you're doing, we have to keep education for the public the general population, education for those at greatest risk, education for the professionals and the medical students we teach at UCL, for all the health professionals, attention to safer uh, behaviours, testing, 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 testing those at high risk, testing in antenatal clinics, testing doctors, thinking more about testing. Has the person before me, have I excluded HIV? And to do that, we have to normalise HIV. It's an, OK, it's a stigmatised condition. It's sexually transmitted. It's all those things. But unless we recognise it's just part of the medical and health landscape, we are going to continue um, with the stigmatised disease, which in turn will push it underground. And remembering that sustained antiviral therapy will something we've got to achieve for growing numbers, and we have to think, how do we deliver and who pays? So last of all, huge inroads, extraordinarily rapid for most conditions in medicine and health, extraordinarily rapid understanding of this condition in the last 30 years, but such a long way to go in terms of public health if we are going to stop transmission. On the other hand, some really new, exciting ideas that if we could get people on treatment, we may be able to make inroads to that combined with this sort of um, a, a combination therapy. 
uh, combination prevention. But remember, there is no cure. We can't cure HIV. We can only keep it under control. So until we have that, and until we have a vaccine, HIV is still for life, and not just for the morning after the night before. So we have to keep on with the investment, the scientific understanding, and the efforts to make this something that we can, we can live with, but also reduce its impact on uh, societies around the world. Thank you. Professor Johnson, can I thank you very much? Um, that was fascinating. Two brief points. The first is, is medical and the issue of uh, resistance to the yeah. ARVs mm. and, and whether actually medical advance is keeping pace with that. Also the issue of cross-infection with tuberculosis and hep C. Mm -hmm. And the second one is, is the total figures that were given there. Uh, how accurate are those, particularly in relation perhaps to the Indian subcontinent and to China, where I think we probably have very little idea about the extent of infection? Okay. Um, thank you very much for those questions. I didn't go into resistance, um, but I mean, it's obviously a huge issue. It's just a matter of time. Obviously, all antiv antiviral therapies, antibiotics, you know, bugs are clever, and they very often um, become resistant, as we've seen in anti with antibiotics. It's true for antiviral therapy. There is a, a system of surveillance of antiviral resistance, and these resistances are... are emerging, mercifully as present at relatively low levels. But they rely, obviously, on people you know, sticking to their therapy, not sharing their drugs, and on being able to you know, sustain therapies over a long period. So resistance is always a problem. We are extraordinarily fortunate having a range of different classes of drugs, which helps to reduce that. But you know, all therapies have a, thus far have had a lifespan. So absolutely right, it's a critical issue. Um, TBHIV, uh, I, I can see people in the audience who know more about this than I do, um, but TBHIV, they are related. And you know, one of the concerns has also been that, that we've seen emergence of, of uh, multi-resistant TB, particularly in HIV communities. So clearly, testing of people with TB for HIV is important and, and understanding the interaction between these different viruses. And that's what I think I mean when I see, as well, treatment is prevention, you know, or prevention is treatment. We also need to be looking out for, you know, avoiding transmission of hepatitis B, hepatitis C, all of which as co-infections can make the outcome worse. And your second question, oh, numbers, yeah. Absolutely right. There is a, these global numbers are based on estimates. It doesn't mean all these people have actually been measured. They're estimates based on surveys of prevalence multiplied by the number of people. Some are more accurate than others. They are estimates from epidemiologists. And clearly, some parts of the world have much better surveillance systems than others. You raise the issue of... Uh, I think in, 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 there's quite a lot of surveillance in India. In China, more is emerging. But certainly in my recent... Uh, uh, visits to China and some of my research, there is evidence that in some communities there is really quite a lot of transmission. It's been shown particularly in MSM populations and they've also been injecting drug use outbreaks. Thank you very much. It was very informative. My question is basic. Where did it come from in 1983? 
Was it some sort of mutation? Or, or it, it didn't. It, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't actually arrive in 1983. We were discussing this. I think now we realise it was many decades before that HIV probably um, transferred from animal populations into human populations. And I think what people are recognising from both from ways which virologists can sort of draw family trees of viruses that go back generations, they can work out when they were first transferred into human populations, it's probably many decades. Um, and it's quite likely that there were, you know, rather than there being one point, there were sort of sporadic outbreaks until, they, until the virus landed in a society or an environment with enough sexual behaviour, uh, uh, sexual partner change and so on for there to be adequate spread within the community. Thank you very much. Um, and I think uh, I'd like you, all to, uh, you can all join me in thanking um, Professor Johnson again for an extremely informative thought. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.